welcome to episode seven of Nomads, the HCI podcast. This is Connie.、Uh, I was absent last week,、uh, doing a lot of different things. But thank you so much to Sunny and also our previous guest Anmol Anubai.、Um, please check out their episode where they talk about her experiences in HCI and also helping rural Indian communities. I'm really excited for today.、Uh, we have our guest, Reality Kanti. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Welcome. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good, real. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. So,、uh, when we compare,、uh, you know, or when we look back at other guests versus you, you have a very different background. You have foundations in、uh, cognitive and learning sciences. You did your uh, uh, doctorate, and you you even did your postdoctorate,、uh, and now you are a design researcher at Google. So, please tell us how you got into the world of human computer interaction. Yeah. So. <clears throat> First, you know, so I can I consider myself a, a design researcher. Yeah.、Um, <clears throat> my foundations are in the in the cognitive and learning sciences. So, initially, you know, when I was when I thought that I was going to go to school, the plan was to design educational technologies and learning experiences for、uh, that that help promote scientific and mathematical reasoning for children.、And、the idea was. You know, looking at the kind of communities that I come from,、uh, looking at disparities in math education, science education, and also in the the pipeline, the STEM pipeline, getting children from those、uh, from underrepresented backgrounds into careers and in, in, that are math and science based. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for for me, it was about you know trying to one understand how people learn, and so that's where the cognitive psychology piece comes in, in into play. Uh, and then you know the learning sciences at the time was a、uh, an emerging field that、uh, also provided some more context. And you know, cognitive psychology focuses a lot on individual processing.、Uh, learning sciences is where I was introduced to、um, learning theories,、um, ideas around you know, how people learn, the social and cultural aspects of of learning. And so I was fortunate. I was a Uh, graduates, a student who had a really steeped training in traditional cognitive psychology, so understanding how people process information.、Uh, but then, in addition to that,、uh, my advisors <clears throat> had the Learning Sciences Research Institute、um, at at the at the university, and that was important because that put me in a space where we were working with the particular projects that I was on. We're working with publishing companies, McGraw Hill. Kendall Hunt, who on some of their, their top their top mathematics curriculum programs, and so I had a chance to work with educational anthropologists, mathematics educators,、um, people in the field, right? So actual teachers and interviewing students. And so while I was doing that work, I'm understanding how people as young as six years old, five years old、uh, are learning and processing mathematics text and interacting with technologies, but. In the cognitive psych side, you know, I still had to make sure that I was meeting my my requirements for a cog psych program. I was working with you know students, you know, eighteen, nineteen years old, all the way up to non traditional students who you know might be in their forties or fifties, and so that that put me in a really a really opportune space to understand some of the individual differences and individual variation in in in, in reasoning and processing, and. At the time, there was a toward the end of, of of my graduate program, I was approached by 
a, a group of people, a guy out in Pittsburgh and two people in New York who were starting a, an app development company. And the goal was to design social learning experiences for toddlers. And this is at the time was like with second generation iPad. And so that was an interesting perspective because, you know, up to that point, I was beginning to become introduced to and some of the, the principles of design, design research, uh, and, and understanding things like, you know, how do we identify who we're designing for and making, being more intentional about our design subjects so that it wasn't just designing for a demographic like grade, but actually trying to understand where users are, where they, and how we can meet them in the, in the design process. So with, the, with, with this company, Name Games, Name Games was, <clears throat> were, it presented the problem of how do you talk to toddlers? How do you elicit reasoning and expectations from children who are very young, like 18 months, you know, 20, 24 months and, and younger. Yep. And so that was an interesting opportunity because and what you found is that, well, in order to do it, the children that age, they don't typically interact with technology alone. They usually have a, someone, a parent, a caregiver, older sibling. And so the, the idea of a persona, <clears throat> I broke that. I had to break that idea of a persona so that thinking about persona is really just asking what is the, 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 the personal, the individual unit of analysis um, when we're designing. And in that case, it happened to be a dyad, right? It was a child caregiver uh, relationship, dyad. And so that in and of itself, given everything that I was learning around design, it said, okay, look, this is, I actually got more excited because it said, this is a, a very, we've been doing design for quite a while, but there's still opportunities. It's still relatively young. And so there's still opportunities to inform the way that we think about design. And, you know, that was just one insight, one jewel that came out of that, that helped to further inspire me to move down this path. I also, um, <clears throat> I also learned that being a strict scientist, was uh, problematic when moving into the space of design. And so I was very, very much a cognitive psychologist. Uh, and, you know, all of the studies that <laughs> I initially was designing uh, met the standards of cognitive psychology. And so, you know, when you ask how many people you're going to study, what you need power, you know, in order to, to run a study. And, and that's not, that, that was problematic for designers, for the design community. And, and I, I learned that, one of the, the, the key differences, the key differences between the kind of rigor that we do in, in scientific, academic research and in industry is the pace, it's the cadence of design and innovation and product development. Yeah. And you have to be able to keep up with that. And so time becomes, uh, is a very important constraint on what we call rigor. And so I had to mentally figure out that I had to understand if I was going to move into this design space, how was I going to be comfortable doing research that at, it initially didn't seem as rigorous as what I was doing? And once I figured out that, no, it actually is, it's, it, it is as rigorous as it can be, right? So working with the constraint of time and how fast we have to move, it actually becomes even more important that we be as rigorous as possible in the design of our studies. And that was key. And once I figured that out, once I was able to, to see that, then I really opened up and became comfortable to the idea of moving into uh, the design research space. 
Uh, you made an int- you made several interesting points throughout that, so I'm gonna pick at your brain a little bit. Um, but most uh, like just now when you were talking about how coming from a cognitive psychologist background, and you know, like there's a lot of things you need to clear, right? You need to, if you have if you need IRB approval, you need to go through that process. You need to clear with the university. You need to brief your participants. You need to do a lot of things, and I think. Um, sometimes within the like ux community like within industry or like if you're just doing bare bones by yourself a lot of those regulations can get thrown out the door or it becomes a lot more casual and informal in those settings um and you made an interesting point about like by going into the space of design it you may have thought it was less rigorous but perhaps it was more of like you just bring the skeleton of the rigorous part of the of the design and of the research that you've done and transferred it over to how design research is done in industry. Um, but I'm curious, like, if you think we should challenge that, you know, like design has this like notion of being like very fast paced, very iterative. Um, but there's also now these conversations surrounding like how UX has evolved as a function of a business value, like a way to do products, a way to have like business market driven innovation, as opposed to societal, like social good kind of innovation, right? In those spaces, which do require a level of rigor. And I've attended like and talked to several people who are like saying things like empathy can't scale, for example, like the capacity for each individual person to give so much of themselves to a research project or working in the social sector or something towards like advancing humanity takes a lot of effort and that's hard or even impossible to scale. So when we're thinking about the rigor that we have in our design research, um, especially in industry, of course, there's like, you know, cost and benefits and like, you know, all the, and like time and money and effort and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm interested to hear like, what do you think? There's not really a right or wrong answer. Just like, this is maybe like a, a nebulous question, but it's something that I've like thought about, you know, like, should we be more rigorous? Should we be better at doing research that is more ethical or in line with regulations and things like that, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, I love this. It's a, it's a beautiful question. Um, it's one. It's like the, the nature. One of these nature nurture questions. It's you know the idea that it's you know that, that it, there's something in between. Um, so in academia, we have institutional review boards, the IRB system, that helps us to be sure that we're not harming our subjects. That the cost of doing the research doesn't outweigh the benefits, right? And so, you know, these are important, these are important principles. In industry, those, you know, those principles are still there, um, but they come from, they come from regulatory agencies within companies, I think more mature design research programs. You have research opt teams, you have, um, boards and committees within research organizations who are especially, you know, and I, and I can attest to when I was at at, at Airbnb that there is a group, um, and I, I happened, was fortunate to be part of that group, that was really keen on providing principles, right? Providing a set of guardrails. Um, and that's important because in industry, the difference is, between, one difference between academia and, and industry is that people are coming from with, into industry from a number of different backgrounds and different experiences, right? And so 
for, for, for them, it's, it's, it's important at, a, at, at the industry level. It becomes important for us to acknowledge that there's a lot of variation in those experiences. Not everyone has done extensive research um, where they've had to go through an IRB, even if they've had, you know, graduate study. Um, and so thinking about the way that we just think about our ethics and, you know, the, 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 the speed and the pace and the cadence of, of product development, uh, it becomes important. And I want to say, talk, talk about two things. I want to talk about how we, how we can and should be scaling empathy. Um, and I also want to then, you know, address why I don't see product development as being uh, necessarily uh, established against that. So for, for empathy, you know, I, I think part of what we think about when we're trying to understand problems and understand spaces and when we talk about the product life cycle and the iterative nature of, of product development, it says that, you know, understanding a problem involves at least a few things. Understanding who it is that we're designing for. Understanding the situation in which that person is embedded. These people, this group of people is embedded. Whatever that may be, whether that's a some kind of service space or an actual product or a product space. And the empathy is in understanding what those interactions are, what emerges from the interaction between people in those, those design, those imagined spaces that we're trying to create. There is this pace that has to happen. Now, as researchers, I think as junior researchers, you know, we're kind of in this space where we're, we're trying to understand the context and understand how do we work within, within this industry. We know that we're coming into companies that have been moving at a certain rate. For us, though, Part of the maturation means that we're developing the courage and the wherewithal to know when it's important to pull on to pull the pull on the reins, to slow things down, and having that voice, uh, being empowered uh, to have that voice. You know, I think because we we work with leaders in our in our spaces, they should be empowering us to take these stances, to push back against product teams, to push back against engine and product launches. And, and, and there's, the, there's an emphasis, an overemphasis on launching. There's an incredible, an inc- enormous amount of incentive toward launching. And you hear people always talk about the launch. But having the foresight to talk about the landing is where research comes in. Right? It's what's going to happen in the landing. And that's what, a, a skill set, that's a vision, that's a lens that we have to develop as, as designers in the design space. Right? So that it's not only the launch, but what is going to happen when this thing lands. What's going to be? What are going to be the consequences? The implications on the user experience during in the landing. So, if we could learn how to position our argument around the entire launch through through landing uh, those two events, then I think we put ourselves in a better position to advocate and to think about how we scale uh, this empathy when it comes to the the pushback. Well, I think that. In mature organizations, there's actually a, there's an invitation, there's a call out, there's a, there's a need for the kind of leaders, the design leaders who can actually come in and scale empathy. So yes, scaling empathy is very challenging. It's difficult, but it takes a certain mindset. It takes a certain position to encourage really in these spaces because you are, we are, will be the lone, the lone voice in the wilderness often, even in 
with and surround by even when we're surrounded by other other designers and, and, and design researchers. And so having the courage to, to to step up and make be the responsible voice, even if you don't even if you lose, there's a certain sense of fulfillment to say that I made a strong argument for this decision. Um and, and, and knowing that, you know that any in writing within organizations writing about things, right? So getting, putting things on paper, having a, a traceable record, you know, these traceable, these cognitive traces, right? So a lot of times our thoughts are here, but we need cognitive traces to follow that other people can pick up as they come into the organization. And so this is all part of the intangibles. To me, it touches on the intangibles that make us successful as design researchers. And it's, it's the things that we, you know, it's the technical skill set. It's, you know, people talk about soft skills. This is also, uh, design is, is very much a, 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 a enterprise for social change. Whether that's social in the, the space out of the world or it's social within a company, within an organization. In many ways, it is our job. To ch- we are, ch- are going to change the thinking of organizations. And that just has to do with the way that many companies are developed. Right. You start off with ideas. We need to hurry up and get those ideas out. And so these companies tend to be edge heavy. If we're talking about you know, tech, they tend to be very edge heavy because you need structure. You need the infrastructure in order to put stuff in front of people. And then later you start bringing in and developing your your design and your design, your research uh, organization. I love yeah. that landing, landing metaphor. Sorry, Sonny. I just got to say, I love that landing metaphor. We talk so much about planning and launch. And I've never, like, I know there's such thing as, like, future thinking designer, like, like, um, uh, what are they called? Like, experiential futures is a part of uh, this, like, broader design pedagogy. And, you know, we never see about, like, do we see UXers as, like, soothsayers almost? That's an interesting thought. Um, but yeah, Sunny, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even I was just talking about, uh, you know, launch dates and timelines. What should decide a product is ready for people? I was just listening to a podcast uh, where Dr. Salima Amashi, uh, who's a researcher in Microsoft, says about this. So the true failure of any launch is when it is not ready for users. So the launch date uh, should uh, follow the design process, but not the other way around. Uh, I think that's what uh, you said, right, Riyal? So empathy and, uh, you know, making sure the product is absolutely ready for users is more important when it comes to launch date. And... uh, now, uh, I was just looking at your LinkedIn profile. Uh, this is what you mentioned. So you said a life, expi- I'm sorry. a life experience comprised of excelling in school, commandering the urban streets, fly fishing on Alaskan rivers, and you go on about it. I just loved it. Yeah. So the point is, so you have uh, a, a conventional education, but I also see that uh, you talk about commandering the streets or more about uh, understanding from situations, learning from the real world on a day-to-day basis. So which is important or how do you maintain the right balance? How do you know that you're maintaining the right balance as a UX researcher or as a person? Mm. <clears throat> well, you know, th- my experience is that th- just by the nature of who I am, Right. Um, whether that's moving into academia, right, educational spaces, whether that's been, you know, going to a certain restaurant, just by the nature of who I am, no matter what I do, I can dress up a certain way. I can, 
wears three-piece suits and vests, and I, I love all of that. Um, but none of that, none of that is going to ultimately uh, put me in a better position. You know, people say, oh, no, you should speak a certain way, talk a certain way. Um, I've learned that the, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a minimal return on some of the, those, those kind of efforts and those kind of changes. Um, and so, you know, the common, this, you know, that little statement of commandeering the streets, uh, it, it has a special place for me because I think it's really important for our field that we recognize ideas, thinking, intelligence, that it, it is manifested in so many different ways. And it's going to sound different. It should sound different. It's going to walk different. It's going to talk different. Um, it's going to feel different. It's going to have different sensitivities to, you know, different experiences and elements of, of experiences in the world. And the, the only way that as a field we become more globally attuned to this variation in the way that the world works and our understanding of problem spaces is if we open ourselves to differences in where people are coming from. And so, you know, my background has been very much, you know, linked to urban street, you know, street settings, um, street experiences. Uh, and so I don't survive and get through that, right? I don't survive and get through that. And, you know, as I'm going through these experiences, you know, being developing like the capacity to make very rapid judgments that, you know, in some cases are, uh, are, are, are life, like life, these are life-threatening moments, right, in, in many cases. And so coming into these spaces, it was ve it's very much the same way. You know, maybe there's not a threat to, there's not a threat of physical harm or physical death, but there can be uh, threats to, you know, career harm, professional harm, professional and career death, right? And I've seen people who maybe don't have that awareness and, you know, don't know how to make the connections and have a difficult time making the connections. And so that's been, that's to, to me, those skill sets, I value them. You know, I think I, I talk a lot about, you know, how I value situated, situated knowledge and how, you know, I've, I've had, you know, good, really good friends who come from have certain backgrounds and then I bring them into other elements that they've never been in before. And, you know, all the, you know, the high, powered academic knowledge, all of it goes out the window because here it is now, this knowledge that they have isn't situ has not been situated in these new, new experiences. So I, it's important for me to put that out there because I want people to recognize that and, and, to, and to, to feel, to reach out and to figure out how can I move in this space? How can I succeed in this space maintaining my identity? Or when I talk about those minimal returns, maintaining my integrity as a, as a person, Right. And this is this is important. If I have a value, if my values are. I'm one with the planet. I don't want to destroy the planet, but then I go to a company that's destroying the planet. Right. These are these are questions that like if, it, if this is at core and when, and when a company shows me their values, their core values, that should that should resonate with me. I shouldn't have to shift. And I've been in cases where recruiters will say, hey, before you go into this interview, check, take a look at our values. Like, I don't have to do that because 
when I get to the interview, I'm not just trying to just get a job. Like I want this to be as organic of a fit culturally, a fit that meshes well with my identity, right? And so I don't have to study study your, your core values. Let's meet. And if my core values don't align with yours and vice versa, then it's not going to be a match and we're not going to go any further. So that's important. It's an important stance to be able to take. It's that not only am I getting value from you, but I know where I come from and I'm bringing value to your situation. Do you see that value? Do you recognize that value? It's very important for me. Yeah, that's amazing, Real. So I think situation cognition, situated cognition is part of identity as well. As in like when I was in India or most of the people try to mimic the British accent. That is a small example I'm giving. Uh, even I tried to do that once. Uh, now I'm in America and, you know, most of my friends are uh, listening to my podcast. They are like, why don't you try the American accent? <laughs> I'm like, as long as people are understanding me, that would be good enough, right? Don't change so, for anyone, Sonny. So, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, so understanding identity, you know, understanding from situations, you know, your background is most important. So that's, that's wonderfully put. So even I have a lot of problems about I have to believe in what I do, I have to believe in the company I work with. So and uh, yeah, I I just like wanted to uh, ask too. um, I think uh, this will come from like a very childlike part of me. I, I think like, there's like this one part of me that's like, oh, when you're trying to fight the system there's like the covert way like i feel like a spy you know like i'm infiltrating this space <laughs> like i had these like ideas in my head you know um kind of like a know the rules so i can learn how to perfectly break them in the right way kind of thing you know um but because i definitely agree i definitely agree that like maintaining identity is super important and i also just want to acknowledge that for some people that can be really hard like sometimes you're like in that weird jelly jelly (laughs) jelly limbo phase right like who am i like what are my values what i want to do and i think increasingly as you know society develops we have so much technology everywhere you know it's very attractive to work at like really big name companies and all that kind of stuff no no absolutely no jabs at you (laughs) real you know um (laughs) But I, I also like I, I see a lot of this in my peers, you know, I think just being honest here, there is a lot of prestige chasing a lot of wanting the name, you know, and I also think there's nothing wrong with that because everyone has their own reasons. But I also do think that like um, sometimes there's a lot of virtue single signaling in the same way that we talk about like issues, right? They're like, oh, we're a company that values these things, but then you go there and it's not reflective. And I think a good example of that is um, gaming industries, especially for women who enter those spaces, right? I'm, I'm quite sure that some women who enter those spaces um, don't particularly support some of the core values that culturally are happening at the company, right? Mm-hmm. But they're trying to change these things. And I also just like want to give a shout out to anyone who's in a job they don't like, but it's a means to an end. Because I certainly do feel like, you know, when I remember being a freshman, a sophomore, being like, I got to just take any job that I can, you know, just got to get that experience. And it, it feels like it feels bad because, you know, it challenges who you are as a person. And my only hope is that as people do better, they can offer mentorship, offer like wisdom and offer basically the grounds to begin kind of a new shift towards helping people reach to where they want to be because I totally you know my mom is someone a brilliant woman but she worked a job that she just wasn't happy at because it was a means to an end to take care of like our family and like now she's somewhere much better and I think she works wonderfully to help people and help women actually get to the places that they want to be from the start you know and like a society like this like we live in a society you know kind of the, the meme that's there 
Um, so like totally hundred percent agree. Maintaining your identity is super important. Want to give a shout out to anyone out there who's, you know, struggling to figure it out because it's certainly a challenge and it's a lifelong thing, yes. you know, trying to find who you are. <laughs> yes. And, and, and can I, I, I certainly want to look, this is, I can't, I don't get to be, I don't get to take the stance that I take without, you know, the the decades of code, like strong code switching, right? The people sacrificing who they are to go in. Like, and so even today, it's it's a, we're working together, right? There's this, I can't come in and totally be my full, they, <laughs> look, companies invite yeah, you, yeah, yeah. be your full authentic self. I guarantee you, you do not want my full authentic <laughs> self. You do, we don't want that. You, don't, you really don't want that. Could look very interesting, <laughs> to say the least. And I don't. Th- we're, yeah. we're not there yet. Um, but but it's important that yes, my, one of my favorite movies, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, and it's this uh, great 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 flick, maybe seventies, and it ended up being it ended up being banned, and it was about. This, uh, this 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 man who was basically infiltrating the system and then going out and teaching the community what he was learning with the system. He got into the FBI or CIA and he made it in, but he was teaching the, the, the community how to overthrow the system. Um, uh, great, great film, great film um, uh, scored by Herbie Hancock, one of probably Herbie Hancock's greatest works that never had a chance to be uh, widely distributed. We start now. Um, but yes, absolutely. And even today, you know, I work, I, we work, we have to work, work together. And so there's this kind of, you know, there's this, this code switching piece, you know, this, on this playing the game that's in there, that's making people feel comfortable, like, okay, all right, they can breathe. <laughs> but then there's also this like slow introduction of, okay, uh, you know, I, I didn't quite expect it to look like that or sound like that. Um, I'm all right with a few of that, a little bit of that. So we're just sprinkling I'm just like a little sprinkle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like a little, I just want to be a little sprinkle, but I, I'm so grateful to those who have come before me and are in spaces right now where they, they are, they have to be in the, in the space because it, I think it helps warm people up for the possibilities of what we can bring, right? I, what, what, and part of the, this, this discussion is, uh, uh, part of this discussion is how do we maybe not have people act authentically, but how do we get people to channel insights, to channel perspective, and, and then be empowered, encouraged to externalize those perspectives just for consideration in the product development process. Right? And very seldom, are, even today, are we in, 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 in the rooms at the table and we're drawing from our family, our cultural, our ethnic experiences and saying, oh, in my culture, here's a way that this is how things might be seen. That's not happening, you know, because <clears throat> we know that to do that is going to, you're going to be facing an incredible gradient. It's like People are going to look at you in a certain way, but we need that. Like, and I, we're not there yet, but we need that. And so the more we can reach that space, I believe that we'll do a better job at actually doing what we're there to do and that's to serve, to design, you know, a, a better world. You know, you it's interesting you mentioned movie and uh, Connie, you talked about gaming. I have no idea about gaming. 
but I recently saw, saw a TV show on Apple TV. It's called Mythic Quest. And uh, it kind of uh, tells the situation of, uh, you know, women in gaming in a funny way. So anyone who wants to watch that, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, talking about compromise, you know, I come from a culture where since childhood, you're always uh, asked to compromise on, on so many things. You know, if you want to have a hot chocolate in the morning, you got to compromise that day, you know. So uh, or if you want to uh, become an artist uh, if you, while growing up, you say, you know, you don't get much of a choice becoming an artist. You know, you, you have to be an engineer or a doctor. So uh, it is part of uh, our day-to-day life, uh, you know, coming from a culture. It's also based on socioeconomic and political conditions, I think. Uh, but uh, now talking about education, you know, uh, uh, the last time we talked or, uh, you know, when I look into your work, I see that uh, you are very much interested in, uh, you know, education and uh, how to enhance the current education system. So what are your thoughts on that? And uh, what do you think needs to be, you know, adapted into the system through design or through human computer interaction? Yeah. Okay. Now, since since you're calling me out on the fact that I am not currently in the (laughs) walked away from the education space. Let's let's address that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I think you're it. still <laughs> situated cognition <laughs> <Just> again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um yeah when, when I initially was was working in uh, the ed tech and the learning space and and I, and, I, and and we're still we still design for learning even in these companies and I, and I, I I'm going to say why in in ed tech when everything was now beginning to go from textbook into the digital space. There was no understanding of affordances. Like what are new affordances? What are some of the new constraints that are associated with learning inside of these interactive platforms? And so what was initially happening was just taking everything that was in a book and then digitizing it. And so instead of reading on a book with pages, you're just doing this reading and on, on the screen. Um, we began to become more advanced as design. You know, you have people who call themselves um, LXDs. These are learning experience designers who now are really transforming the ed tech space. And that's an, it's important that we have that. It's important that we have people who are grounded in understanding the way people learn, understanding how do we know what students know and, you know, bringing all of that together, the measurement and the assessment, you know, uh, aspects. And, and then understanding, you know, having theory around, you know, the design principles around, you know, situated myths and um, affordances and, you know, understanding that, look, these are different learning environments. And so with these learning environments come things that people have to have to be attuned to. And how do we design for those and these, these different learning experiences? In the in tech, we do the same thing, right? So even when it's not an explicitly the product isn't explicitly one of learning and education, it's still things like look at today where privacy is an issue, right? Engineers are, are designing algorithms, right? We we know about the bias that you can be baked into to algorithms. We know from a an end user standpoint that people have a difficult time understanding all these privacy controls. You can be as transparent as you want about privacy. Hey, this is what, if we take this, these data, 
How do you feel about us taking these data? And if we take these data and you agree to let us take this data, how do you feel about us using them in this way and that way? You can be as transparent as you want. People don't currently have the understanding to support their decisions that, that, that they're currently making. Yep. That's just, that's where the world is right now. As our identities and who we are becomes more embodied in data, and as it is now, right? There was a point in time when you could lose your identity if someone stole your passport, your national identification card, your driver's license, <clears throat> social security number in the United States. Um, now, it's we have so many data points that have now assigned to us that have that have, uh, that identify who we are, different companies and entities. Our embodiment, who we are, is now just being distributed. It's out in. It's out in the ether world. It's in this world in which you know, there's so many ways that people are now trying to look for vulnerabilities to steal pieces of who we, even if they're not trying to get the entire dream or the entire, they're trying to get pieces of the dream. They just want a part of who we are. And, and this, we don't even understand that yet, right? As a, as a, as a, as a human population that is now interacting with this new world, that is this new emerging world in which we're more than just biochemical properties. Like we actually now have digital properties. Like this is who, what it means to be human even for many people. Without that understanding, then people will continue to make decisions about their own, their own safety, their own identity, um, their own well-being, but not understanding the implications of the decisions that they're making. And so companies now are having to take the task of educating people, right? And so I want people to, as they make these decisions, I want them to be, to understand. I want them to have control, right? And it's a weird thing, right? To come across these, these, these notifications and to be told that they're your data and I'm going to give you control over something that's yours. Like that's, that is very, that's difficult to wrap your head around. So from a learning standpoint, there are different types of learning. Now we can go into, well, where does learning come in and why is learning important even in this space? There's really four different key uh, learning theories, learning waves. There's the uh, differential theory, there's behaviorist, there's cognitive, and there's kind of the situated sociocultural. And so first, understanding these different ways in which we learn are very important in how we assess the way that people learn, right? And so we talk about in, 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 in this space that we're in, there's all kind of talk about mental models. Mental models is one type of representation. And so if you talk to a cognitive psychologist that come, in and come into the space, why is it the only thing you talk about are mental models? What about schema, right? What about frames, right? And so there are all these other different types of mental representations. And then what are the limitations of that? If the only thing that we're saying is, well, let's identify what people's individuals' mental models are, then we may not be addressing the need to understand and better understand and design for the sociocultural uh, aspects of learning, right? And so when I talk about privacy, it's not just what's in my head. It's how I, you and I, outside of just how you and I talk about our privacy and our identities. Right. It's what, how we learn about who we are in school. And, and you're actually seeing this now with children 
younger children in live public libraries um, and now certain controls with technologies are now actually beginning to encounter more information about their privacy. Because this is how do we understand who we are? This is really it's it, it can be a challenge to wrap your head around. But it is this, this is a tra- these are transformative moments. And privacy is one of those those areas, one of these domains in which we have to understand how people learn and be able to now design the kind of learning, the, the appropriate learning interventions to get people to the point where they're making well-informed decisions about how they're going to interact with companies, what kind of data they're, they're willing to give to companies. What are the implications of me saying, yes, take these data, no, take those data. All of this is important and learning is at the, is at the key of that. Giving someone a Presenting somebody with a quick uh, info um, pop up about what these data are still doesn't meet the that doesn't promote the understanding that we need, right? And and so the situative the situative awareness of knowing that yes, I know what's happening with my data. I give you permission or I don't give you permission is is absolutely key. These cultural shifts are also really fascinating. I think because. Quite honestly, when I hear ed tech and I hear like how elementary schoolers will be applying it to like toddlers and babies and even younger, the first example that pops to my mind in my experience was when I was just learning Microsoft Word in elementary school. They're just teaching you how to use a computer like this is the save button. This is how to make a file. This is how you email that file to your teacher. Um <clears throat> And it's so interesting to see like iPads and like social media apps are so accessible to younger people. And I honestly do think like it's again, like this, all these spaces are very complicated, right? Um, and they exist in this vacuum of of capitalism as well. And so there's a lot of thing about like legal jargon, right? They're one of the valuation heuristics that we use in UX is like plain and simple language that's accessible to people. But terms and conditions are not written in that way for the most part. Um, people don't understand like what's a cookie you know when I'm on a website like there was everyone heard about it but does anyone know what it actually is no right Um, and so it's it's very interesting um, this conversation around like how do we help people learn about things like privacy right and like a part of that is that these things can't exist as a singular item which is where I think design is so powerful we think about these large policy changes about these large cultural shifts about younger kids learning about privacy and that their identity is now on the internet when you know cyberbullying what became like a big topic for um when the internet was such a big part and like now it's becoming a part of i think children's education about being online so how do these things evolve over time like where like what you were talking about at the very beginning of this episode like what about the landing where are we gonna land with this right how do we how do we how do we plan to stick that landing and what are we gonna do to put those measures to make sure that landing stays solid, right? And like, how are we going to move forward? Um, and so just a lot of things to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, since you mentioned, uh, you know, when you were in kindergarten, uh, you were learning to use computers and everything. I just remembered when I was in fifth standard, we used to have a computer laboratory. And uh, basically what we were supposed to do was we just go there, see the computer. We don't even turn it on. We just see it. And everyone just goes around it and comes outside, you know. And uh, yeah, the thing is, uh, now there are more than 760 million smartphones in India. So everyone is using a smartphone because it is very accessible. But the point is, uh, in the last episode, uh, we t- I talked to Anmol uh, about rural communities. And uh, there are more than 65% uh, you know, uh, population in India is rural. 
so they don't even understand in uh, you know english and they don't even understand something like privacy or uh, what kind of data they are getting or what kind of data is being stored uh, and uh, uh, for the record uh, i just read another article where google is spending 10 billion dollars uh, to promote free education in india through you know uh, uh, digital technologies that's amazing real so you are actually contributing to education you know by being in google i think and uh, so uh, now please tell us what is your day to day like uh, as a ux researcher what do you do at go you know what is your work like yeah that uh, that varies day day to day um uh, but most of the days um and i try to I try to preserve two days a week where i can really just do heads down work otherwise you'll get inundated with meetings and so uh but for the most part big part of my day is meeting with various cross functional partners different stakeholders um people on different teams i i work in the area of of privacy in the privacy and data protection office and so um i serve a number of different business units right across the alphabet about the the alphabet ecosystem um focusing a lot on both po- policy and infrastructure and so you know trying to trying to get a sense of you know where people are at like engineering teams where where they're at and you know what what are their needs you know in order for us to to really do to really design privacy well um and 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 so in addition to the meetings there's you know time where yeah, online is different but you know there's a lot of time just meeting and building relationships there's uh time where it's you know it's really heads down and it's about beginning to build out deliverables um what are you going to share what are you going to present to to different stakeholders at different levels and so it's quite a quite a bit but i i think one of the, the biggest challenges for me at, at google was coming in and feeling like we do meetings every day all day when are we working <laughs> right and that is part of work but when am i going to have that head down time and then finally i i spoke with someone who's been here for some time and they said no you cut off a couple of your days and you you put don't not schedule unless you ask so uh i've i've done that there's a lot of reading right building domain expertise uh is 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 critical so i work with I'm fortunate to be on a team and 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 this is actually this is a growing and increasing need and increased there's an increasing demand for domain expertise in our field and many of us are generalists and we do great at having domain general knowledge but i'm fortunate that i i work with i have people on my team who went to school and in their hci programs they focused on privacy right and so that's it's actually wonderful to be in that space because i've worked on privacy before i've worked on trust um but to find and and even in those cases domain generality was enough right it wasn't we really need domain specificity in certain areas and so as people begin to move from their study programs into the field and you know you get in the field you know we've got to one get a job we've got to get in the door but begin to think about where where you might develop domain expertise because that's going to amplify your value uh exponentially right? when everyone else is comfortable being a domain generalist we have spaces like ai right we have spaces like um this data right and what's happening with the proliferation of data and data types right and and we've got 
data associated with external physical hardware, right? All of these these areas, privacy, trust, that we need domain experts in those in these 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 fields. You're going to be working with legal teams. You work with I work with legal teams. I work with internal policy teams, right? And so all of this is absolutely critical. Yeah. But if you really want to amplify your value in the in the field, um, it's going to part of that means building, getting finding a domain that you feel comfortable with and then settling in and, and building expertise in that in that domain. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, that's a great advice for us as well, I think. Uh, and I'm interested about privacy. I'm interested about everything that uh, users interact with at this point. You know, uh, I talked about AI in the last episode with Anmol. We talked about privacy with Kian Lavi, who works at Facebook in one of our episodes. Uh, but since we talked about, uh, you know, cognition and, uh, you know, there's a mix and match between uh, learning from the situations, learning from the environments and people you meet and uh, learning uh, from the conventional education system. Uh, now I'm curious, uh, you know, what is the best way to move forward to, uh, you know, inculcate situated cognition in everyone so that we can identify every person, we can identify the div- division in the society in terms of identity, yet be united. We can just coexist in the society, you know, being who we are. Uh, that is the whole point of, uh, you know, unity and diversity or uh, the code that everyone sees in India, at least. So uh, in the current scenario, what would be the necessary uh, thing in terms of education uh, to inculcate uh, the idea of coexistence or, uh, you know, uh, the idea of cognitive, uh, you know, situated cognition. Yeah, um, one one approach that that I'm working on with a few other people now is trying. It's working to illuminate the accomplishments and the achievements and the value. Right? It's almost like how can you demonstrate business? What are some of the business? What are some of the business cases? Right. And, and this is, you know, so there's how do you do that outside of a company? But within a company, it's how do you get a business to how do you get a business's a company's attention? And having business cases is always important. Right. It's showing. Providing examples where other industries, other enterprises have missed opportunities um, is, is important in the. It's funny because in you know in the United States there there was there was a time when certain groups of people you just talk about the business of talk about the business of athletics and there was time there was a time when uh, African people of African descent <laughs> right were perceived as not being intelligent enough to know how the the rule to understand the rules of a, a, a sport like basketball right. It was like, no, these, there's no way that they're going to be able to understand how to pass, how, when to dribble, when not to dribble, when to shoot. Like, this was just going to baffle their, their, their minds. There's no way that they can do it. Uh, fast forward, you know, a few decades, you know, since then, and you see the, there's an amount of, the kind of opportunity that, 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 that came out of, you know, opening the doors, right, and, 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 and positioning yourself taking an industry, an enterprise, a business enterprise, and letting it position itself where it was more open to bring in different types of people and different types of thinking. So there are two things that, that have to take place. One is kind of promoting, promoting the value that different perspectives 
add. And at the same time, it's de- deconstructing some of the, the concepts and misconceptions that currently exist. Because if that's foundation and education, that back for me, that goes right back to you know, how do we teach young children how to move into multiplication, you know, from uh, addition and, and subtraction, right? And it's, they have misconceptions when they see certain symbols. So you deconstruct those symbols first, deconstruct those, re, those current representations. Yeah. And then from there, that if you deconstruct, then you reconstruct and build um, on, on those, those basic foundations to help them move forward. And so you do have to do the same thing within companies as well. And so a lot of times, just people only hang out with people who look like them, who are from where they're from. And so a lot of this is just, a lot of it is, is, is not naive in the, the most, in a really strict, formal sense of what it means to be naive, right? It's they, people just don't understand other people. They don't, they're not aware. We're not learning about this in educational courses in our school curricula about different people. And people don't need, you know, if you ask a lot of people in the, in, like in the United States about other people around the world, they don't know about great kingdoms and scientists and mathematicians. And they think it all is here. It's, 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 for me, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, because of the, the kind of education outside of school that I, that I had coming up. But for other people, it's like, you mean to tell me that those people had kingdoms? Those people had libraries? Those people, when, you know, when Europe was in the Dark Ages, you know, actually had running water and toilets? Like, no, right? So <laughs> this is important for us to begin to educate. Part of it is an education process about, about people and people's achievements, the human achievements and how the human achievement is distributed across the globe. That was amazing. You know, I totally agree with that because uh, there is a lot, lot of stereotyping, even when, uh, you know, uh, I was watching uh, an episode of Master of None. Uh, it's an amazing TV show for anyone uh, who wants to watch. So uh, there they tell, uh, you know, how there is uh, so much of, uh, you know, stereotypical opinions about uh, if you are an Indian, you have to do an IT job. If you, have an in- if you are an Indian, you got to do this accent like, hello, how are you? What are you doing? Kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. So do you, do you have any thoughts, Connie? Uh, since we are uh, reaching the end of this episode, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think this episode has been very nicely encapsulated in a lot of the conversations we have about just like identity, about what it, what the future will hold, basically, right? And, and like you just left off here um, talking a bit about how we're going to shift culture to think about it in education, right? And how we're going to move forward, essentially, right? Um, and in, in that same vein... Um, when we move forward, this episode has to end. So I'm going to um, do what we normally do here, which is um, just ask, what is like one piece of wisdom or advice and the lesson that you want to leave our listeners here with today? Take your time and find yourself. Find yourself. Bring yourself to everything that you do. That to me is um, it's a beoutiful, it sounds esoteric, eccentric, um, it, but it, it absolutely, it's absolutely critical for I think what design is about, what design can be about. And it's, you know, really bringing equilibrium, a state of equilibrium and balance to our position, our relationship with the universe and everything in it. And, and, you know, so that's, that's, I, that's not what I do, how I talk on a day-to-day basis, but it's the principles 
that it's part of the one of the principles that I bring to my my job every day. It's allowed me, enabled me to achieve success. And for success, that means being able to feel that at the end of of the day, that when I leave, I'm still the same person that I've always been, right? And I'm I'm doing work that I think is changing people's minds, changing people's the way that people perceive others in the world uh, and, and also possibilities for themselves. That was absolutely awesome, Real. Identifying young, identifying oneself can solve a lot of problems. That is something I'm learning personally. So I'm, I think I'm still in a journey of identifying myself completely. Uh, even today, every day I, I ask this question uh, when I wake up from bed in the morning. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking about identities, cognition, and uh, how we can create an equilibrium in the world through design and human-computer interaction. Thank you so much to Riel for being here with us today and share, taking some time. You know, it's a busy time and it's a tough time for a lot of people. Um, go vote. If you're a United States citizen, go vote. Um, there's a great resources out there. Stephen Colbert has a great resource, uh, Better Know a Ballot for each state. So I'm going to put that in the link in the description. Everyone, please go vote. Your vote matters. Your voice matters. Um, if you have questions, reach out to communities message me if you need to i will help you personally um to get you to vote can i vote connie and i'm unfortunately you cannot but you can encourage all the people that you know to vote if they can yes all my american friends just go vote voting is your right and you gotta you know fight for your rights i think so with that um thank you again for being here thank you everyone for listening um, links in the description as always um, we'll put uh, links to Rails LinkedIn in there so you can connect with him and thank you again M- many thanks today thank you Connie and Sunny I appreciate you and I love everything that Nomads is about this is Sunny this is Connie this is Rial signing off for now